Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In this week's episode, Richard explores the Lord's counterintuitive stance in Ezekiel in which judgment falls on all sides and no human being finds favor in God's sight. Why would the story present God as the one who brings evil against Israel? Why would he use Israel's enemies only to bring more evil against them after the fact? The podcast explores these questions as we discuss the very passages in Ezekiel which gave rise to the expression, fire and brimstone. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos, and you are listening to episode 48 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Richard was under the weather this week, and so he and I were not able to meet in person to record the podcast. However, we did manage to pull off a phone interview. The audio quality isn't as good as we would prefer. However, the content is great, and I hope that you enjoy listening to our discussion this week. Thanks very much. So I was looking at chapters 39 and 40 this week, and there's a big shift in what happens from 39 to 40. In 39, we have kind of the end of everything, and then 40, we have kind of a new beginning. So there's a big shift that happens in between these two chapters. In 39, we have the big culmination of the big war with Gog and Magog. And what's interesting is that in 38, we had how Israel was going to be completely beaten down. And then in 39, those who beat Israel down are now completely beaten down. So in 38 and 39, we have the complete leveling of the entire world. You have in the earlier chapters, in 37 and 38, you have the introduction of the Davidic dynasty. And as is the case with most literature, when you talk about you know, Tolkien's return of the king, there's an expectation that the king will usher in peace, and establish security for his nation and so forth. But then suddenly, David takes a back seat. He disappears. And then instead of the champion of the people defending the people, you have God step in as king and lord of the whole dominion of the earth. And he fights everybody, including Israel. It's very powerful. I mean, completely destroyed. In 38.22, I will reign upon him and upon his bands and upon the many people that are with him and overflowing rain and hailstones and fire and brimstone. Like, this is where we get the phrase fire and brimstone. This is when it comes. Throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God in 38.21, every man's sword will be against his brother like everything. And then in 29, it's going to be the destruction of the one who destroyed them. And we talked about this theme when we talked about the Book of the Twelve, because in the Book of the Twelve, we have a destruction of Israel, then followed by destruction of the one who destroyed Israel in back-to-back books. We have Amos, where there's a destruction of Israel, and then it's followed up by Obadiah, and then we have destruction of Israel and Micah, and then we follow that up with Nahum. And so we have a destruction of Israel, then followed by a destruction of the ones who destroy Israel. 
and you have this going back and forth. And here we have it in back-to-back chapters in 38 and 39. And what the Lord is emphasizing is that no one stands out against the Lord. No one stands out against anyone else. And as soon as they try to, this is where their ego is getting the best of them. And this is how they get themselves into trouble. Because we saw this in the book of the Twelve, that the main problem of the nations is their pride. And the pride then is the problem. Well, you have this in Isaiah also. The Lord is flattening out all of creation so that he's the only one who stands out. This is a recurring theme. It's broader, I think, than the book of the Twelve. But you find it in the Psalter. You find it everywhere. I think you're right. I think you see it everywhere where Israel has to know that they're going to be flattened. But they also have to know that their enemies are going to be flattened, yet not let their ego and their pride get the best of them to think that, okay, now I'm the same as this one. You know, it's like if you have two children and one of them gets punished and their pride is hurt, but then you go and you punish the other one, the first one will smile knowing that the other one got it just as bad as he did. This is what the Lord has to avoid, and this is what the Lord is fighting against when he's dealing with the people. So this is the end of kind of the narrative part of Ezekiel before it gets to the end, where it's just going to be, this great destruction, so much so that the people aren't even going to have to collect firewood anymore. They'll be able to just burn the spent weapons for the next seven years. And what else is interesting is that there's a complete reversal on what happens in the normal cult, the normal religious practice, which is of sacrifice, where you have the priests on behalf of the kings sacrifice animals for the sake of the people, but what's interesting in 39:17, and thou said of man, thus says the Lord God, speak unto every feathered fowl and to every beast of the field, assemble yourselves and come gather yourselves on every side to my sacrifice that I sacrifice for you, a great sacrifice upon the mountains of Israel that you may eat flesh and drink blood. So he's calling the animals to a sacrifice. And who are the ones who are going to be sacrificed? In verse 18, you shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, and of goats, of bullocks, all of them fatlings of Bashan. You shall eat fat until you're full and drink blood till you're drunk of my sacrifice, which I have sacrificed to you. Horses and chariots, mighty men, men of war. So what the Lord is doing is he's reversing the normal cult. And instead of the mighty men sacrificing animals for their own favor, the Lord is sacrificing the mighty men so that the animals can then eat them. This is what goes on in the New Testament when it deals with the crucifixion. And we talked about this earlier this year in one of our podcasts, where now you have God presenting his son, the mighty man from on high, and putting him in a position of weakness so that his enemies would consume him in order to provide life for the whole earth, right? In order to basically obliterate the strength and the might of human princes and kings. Oh, yeah. It's very powerful in the metaphor of this text. And it's not the first time, I think, in Ezekiel that we've heard about consuming the flesh and the blood of the mighty and so forth. Right. I just love the way that it's, it's set up as a sacrifice, not just a destruction, but a sacrifice, as if the temple is now in the field and the people conducting the sacrifice are not the mighty humans, but in fact the lowly animals of the field. 
And the humility, I think, is really what's important here. A moment ago, Father, you asked me, you know, where is this driving at in the narrative? The very end of chapter 39, in verse 25, therefore, thus saith the Lord God, now I bring again the captivity of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel and will be jealous for my holy name. So now this is the relief that Israel gets. Okay, finally, we'll be able to be brought into the land, we'll be safe, and everything's going to go well for us, right? But like I said a moment ago, the Lord has to somehow keep the smirk off the face of Israel as they're brought into the land in spite of the destruction of the enemies. After that, they have borne their shame and all their trespasses, whereby they have trespassed against me when they dwelt safely in their land, and none made them afraid. So when they dwelt in the land securely and well before, they forgot about their sins. It right. took this destruction of the entire world for them to understand the gravity of their sin. Following verse, when I have brought them again from the people and gathered them out of their enemies' lands and am sanctified in them in the sight of many nations, then shall they know that I am the Lord their God, which caused them to be led into captivity among the heathen. But I have gathered them unto their own land and have left none of them anymore there. So the thing is, is that they have to keep that shame of their sin in front of their face at all times knowing that the Lord is the one who brought them into captivity and the one who brought them out of captivity. The Lord is the one who does everything. And, you know, you and I have talked about the discussion, is God capable of doing evil? The whole thing that the people have to keep in front of them is not only is the God capable of evil, he does perform the evil of bringing them into a captivity. He's the one that sends the nations against them. He's the one that causes both the agricultural destruction and the military destruction that they're so worried about. He's the one that brings that. And not only is it bad, the word in Hebrew is ra, which is evil. It's the same word for bad or for evil. This is what the Lord brings to them. And this is what they need to understand. And it's not evil for the sake of the Lord to flex his muscles. It's for the sake of the people to understand their sin and to remember that I am the Lord, says the Lord their God. Well, and the funny thing about evil is that, like all things scriptural and all things practical, it's functional. Evil for whom? That's the question. If God comes in and brings down the mighty, that is good news in this section of Ezekiel for the animals that live in the land. It's good news. I think the whole philosophical, theological debate about whether God could do works of evil is once again, it's anthropocentric because human beings think that civilization is good, but what is it doing to the rest of creation? Human beings like to have green lawns, but there are people in Africa who drink out of muddy water holes. So what is evil for whom in what circumstance is an important question. I do think that what the Lord's doing from the perspective of those he's trampling underfoot is definitely evil from their perspective. But if the Lord is the one who's doing it, it is incumbent upon them to accept it as his righteous judgment. Right. The Lord is on both sides. He is the one who brings them into captivity and is the one who brings them out of captivity. So it's the Lord who is on both sides. The only way for them to remain on the land is to realize that their trespass is always before them. All that's transpired before is because of their own trespass, their own sin. And then this is how we lead into the following chapter of Ezekiel, 
where we have a new phase of development. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, this has been a really, really helpful, interesting discussion. I truly appreciate you making the effort to have this conversation this week, knowing that you're battling some kind of cold, and we all hope that you get well soon so that we can do our next podcast face-to-face going into the Christmas season. Sounds wonderful. Thank you very much, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening.